As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. This episode is brought to you by Pretty Mommies, the number one physician-recommended pregnancy skincare line. I discovered the collection when I became pregnant with my twins. All of a sudden, I had to throw out my Retin-A and products that consisted of alpha-hydroxy and beta-hydroxy acids, which are found in so many facial cleansers. Not to mention soy, which is vegan and organic, but mimics estrogen and can be an endocrine disruptor. I was so impressed to find that Pretty Mommies uses all natural ingredients and can help combat acne-prone skin, melasma, aka the pregnancy mask, and rosacea. My skin was vibrant, supple, and all my friends would ask me just how I got my pregnancy glow. It's safe during breastfeeding, and I know I'll continue to use Pretty Mommies products forever. Give it a try and receive 20% off using my code MOMSENSE20. In 2019, women earn 79 cents for every dollar a man makes. Though we can attribute the gender pay gap to several factors, including occupational segregation, bias against working mothers, and circumstances like racial bias, disability, and access to education, there's no denying the numbers and that we still have a lot of work to create an even playing field. On today's episode, I am thrilled to have a woman and mother who has been an advocate for closing the gender gap throughout her career. Reshma Sojani is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, the international nonprofit organization working to close the gender gap in tech and change the image of what a computer programmer looks like and does. It has reached 185,000 girls in 50 states, Canada and the UK. In 2019, Girls Who Code was awarded Most Innovative Nonprofit by Fast Company. Reshma is the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, and has a podcast with the same name, and the New York Times bestseller, Girls Who Code, Learn to Code and Change the World. Reshma's TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 4 million views and has sparked a worldwide conversation about how we're raising our girls. She began her career as an attorney and activist. In 2010, she surged onto the political scene as the first Indian-American woman to run for U.S. Congress. During the race, she visited local schools and saw the gender gap in computing classes firsthand, which led her to start Girls Who Code. She is a graduate of the University of Illinois, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and Yale Law. 
Her work on behalf of young women has earned her broad recognition on lists including Fortune World's Greatest Leaders, Fortune 40 Under 40, Wall Street Journal's Magazine Innovator of the Year, Forbes Most Powerful Women Changing the World, and Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People, among others. She lives in New York City with her husband, Nahal, their son, Sean, and their bulldog, Stanley. Reshma, it is an absolute honor to have you on that Total Mom Sense today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So I want to just share um, the story of how I met you for the first time. It was back in 2013, and you were the keynote speaker at the AIF, which stands for American Indian Foundation Gala. And at the time, you were the front runner as New York's next public advocate. You were the first Indian American to run for Congress prior to that. And I still remember how floored I was listening to your story and the the chutzpah that you have and seeing that live was such a force. So I just wanted to share that with you. You have done all of us Indians, women, individuals proud. (laughs) Thank you so much. So I believe that we don't know where we're going until we assess and look back at where we've been. So Mm. I want to backtrack you through your childhood. And let's start with your parents. They're of Gujarati descent and lived in Uganda prior to being expelled by dictator Idi Amin in the 70s. Can you tell us that whole story? Sure. So two generations of my family was born in Africa. So my parents, I mean, my great grandparents were originally brought over to build the railroad from Kampala to Mombasa. And so, yes, my parents speak fluent Swahili and were born there. And so were my grandparents. Basically, in the 1970s, this dictator, Idi Amin, came to power. I'm sure a lot of people have seen Mississippi Masala or um, what was it, The Last King of Scotland. Right. And this really crazy guy, Idi Amin, just had a dream that he should expel all of the Indians from the country. And he kind of got on television one day and said, hey, you got 30 days to leave the country. And my parents are both trained engineers. They had actually gone to engineering school in India and and come back to Africa. And so, you know, my dad had um, six brothers and sisters. My mother had eight. So there's a huge, huge family in Africa. And everybody was scrambling for refugee status. And Mm. my parents were fortunate to be two of a thousand refugees who got status to come to the United States. And that's really, you know, how we ended up here, how they ended up here. Wow. And can you tell us about your childhood? Where did they immigrate to and where'd you grow up? Yeah. So they ended up going to Chicago, Illinois. You know, I was born in Berwyn, Illinois, which is right outside of the city. You know, in the beginning when they came there, my father worked as a machinist in a plant. My mother sold cosmetics until they got jobs as engineers. And I remember my dad, you know, would send his resume out and he would get like no responses. And finally a recruiter said to him, you know, maybe you should change your name from Mukun to Mike. And that's how my dad mm. became Mike. I don't know if like what your parents, like, does your dad have like an American name? Like, um, yeah, my in-laws did that. My um, father-in-law his name is Ramesh, but he's uh, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it went from like Ramesh to Robert to Bob. So yeah, I, I've I experienced that too. <laughs> it's funny, and it's funny as we're talking about it now, like um, how typical that was then. But now yeah. this is that we would never think, right, of changing my name from like Reshma to Rachel, right? right? Uh, even though you still, you know, every time I go to the Starbucks, like people are like, what, what, how do I say, and, you know, it's, it's, it would be much more quote convenient, you know, to have to be Rachel, but we, it's not, but back then it was really like custom. And, and I think part of that identity change and name change for them 
came with so much more than changing their name. You know, yeah. it was really like my dad used to go to Toastmasters every week and really get rid of his accent, right? Like I barely can speak Gujarati. And so I think that that there was a lot of assimilation. I think I I grew up very much with my family trying to assimilate us into a culture that was very white. Mm -hmm. So do you have siblings? I have an older sister named Keshma, of course, mm-hmm. very Gujarati, Keshma Reshma, <laughs> Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm kind of got so yeah. <laughs> right? Totally know yeah. it. Did you feel like you noticed the disparities between young Indian boys and girls early on, especially having just you and your older sister? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like maybe I attribute it to our culture, right? First of all, I didn't have a boy in the house, and my father didn't treat me any differently because I was a girl, meaning he always encouraged me to excel and to do well. Like I was like kept in my, you know, I was in my debate club and my UN club and I was very argumentative and I was very feisty. And I used to walk around with this like, you know, Chicago, like Cubs hat, you know, and I was, mm-hmm. I was a little bit of a tomboy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he never discouraged, my parents never really discouraged that. And so I very much in many ways, I feel like grew up with a feminist dad mm-hmm. um, where I did see it play out was I think you know they had a huge circle of, of other Indian families that they were friends with and I think that the boys I don't know maybe in like you know didn't have to clear off the table or you know like things like that like I would see some inklings of like us being treated differently but not really I, I don't feel like I really 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 you know started thinking about that until I was in college and law school okay one thing that you had shared in, in one of your talks was that your dad used to read you the biographies of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi and Eleanor Roosevelt and really kind of gave you almost like permission that you can change the world. Reader's Digest used to um, have this edition of like these little books that were about the stories of these just, you know, incredible change makers. My father would always sit me on his lap and he would, he would read to them. And, and it really influenced me, I think, to be the person that I am today. Like I was always, I don't know, attracted to, connected by people that were using their life in the service of others. And I think... Mm their refugee story, their struggle. You know, my parents came to this country in their 20s. They didn't have any friends, any family. I don't know if you ever look back and like, you're like, wow, like you didn't speak the language, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't have anything. And right. I was very, I think, from the, definitely by the time I was 12 and 13, you know, very moved by their struggle as refugees and about the fact that public service is so important and fighting for your rights and justice is so important. That's so powerful. On your TED Talk, you decided to open with how running for Congress was the bravest and, as naysayers may say, the stupidest thing you've ever done. (laughs) You were the underdog in the 2010 Democratic primary in um, New York's 14th Congressional District, and you were running against an incumbent that had been there since 1992. You know, you were backed by the New York Daily News, covered in Wall Street Journal, CNBC, but in the end, you earned 19% of the votes. And this quote really, really struck me. You said... The same papers that said I was a rising political star said I wasted $1.3 million on 6,321 votes. You do the math. I mean, I just found that to be so profound because 
Firstly, it's a life lesson that I think we all can learn. In your case, you had to learn from this failure in the public eye. Instead of feeling defeated, you choose to highlight this. You opened your TED Talk with this, your book with this. You know, there's no humble brag from you. You keep it real. So many of us appreciate that. Why? I think when I was growing up, I admired so many women and I would read their stories and be like, oh my God, I could never do that. Because I think that's what you did back then. It's funny, I was listening to a podcast that Hillary did or an interview that she did with Howard Stern. She was talking about this. And you know, for a lot of women, you couldn't show any type of mistake or flaw, right? Mm -hmm. You had to Mm -hmm. make it seem like you were perfect and it was easy and you were just going with it. And I think what happens then in my generation is that then we saw that and like, oh, I could never do that. Why even bother? Like we almost started giving up before we even try. And I think, so I've chosen, you know, in my leadership to basically show the mess behind the scenes Mm -hmm. and show like the truth and the honesty and that it's tough and that there's bumps in the roads and there's a lot of struggle because that is the truth. And I think when we tell women the truth, I think they're more likely to take risks and to try things and to fail and to not give up before they try. Yes, absolutely. Do you feel that over the years you've become kind of unfazed by rejection and failure? Oh, God, no. No, no it, still, it still hurts. I think that like my hack on it is that I recover faster. Mm. Right. In some ways, I still think because we live in a success driven society, I think we are conditioned to actually feel failure more than we feel success. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like if you're if something you're really working on happens, you're like, oh, that's amazing. And then you're on to the next on thing. To the next. Yes. Onto mm-hmm. it. On to it. Like within yeah. like a second. Yeah. But when yeah. You, something doesn't work out, you could sit for a month thinking yeah. about it, replaying it, feeling sad about it. Right. I think about that a lot. Like, yeah. why is that? So I think that that's why it's so important to not let yourself sit in that failure for too mm-hmm. long because I think we fear that it will break us. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Maybe as I'm getting older, I see a lot of women my age now and they didn't take the risk and they didn't leave the job they hated or they didn't walk out of the relationship they didn't want or, you know, like they didn't have a baby by themselves. And right. they're full of a lot of regret and envy. And I think yeah. it's so much better to live a life where you, at least you tried than yeah. to like a, a woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yeah. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on Senator um, Kamala Harris um, and her decision to bow out of the upcoming presidential election? Oh, I just wrote an I wrote an op-ed about that on, on Medium. I I think she is such an example of brave, not perfect, and the fact that failure and the mess behind the scenes has such greater consequences for women than it does for men. You know, when she made that decision, look, and I haven't endorsed anybody, but I was really heartbroken. I just think that we've seen gender play out in this presidential cycle and this primary in ways that are just depressing. And, you know, it was just kind of this relentless criticism and critique of her, her family, her campaign, her management. And it just seems like the guys just don't have that same scrutiny in that same way. You know, I don't know what the lesson is in terms of like what she could have done differently. I don't know if there is anything that she could have done differently. I think it goes back to given like 150 speeches this year. And the same question that always gets asked to me that I honestly have the hardest time finding an answer to is like, you know, is there a higher cost? I mean, the answer is yes. Like there is a higher cost of failure for women and women of color than there is for men. But that now what? What do you do Mm -hmm. with that? Right, right. It's so true. So it was your work in the 
political arena and in public service that led you to launch Girls Who Code. Tell us about that aha moment you had. You know, I I run for office and as part of that experience, you end up visiting schools. I go into robotics classes and computer labs and I don't see any girls in these classes. I And it, it surprised me. See, I, I wasn't a CS major, right? So mm-hmm. I wasn't versed in the gender divide in technology. Something I'm kind of like in my mind, like, huh, that's weird, right? What is that about? And, you know, after I lose, it's clear to me that like, I'm not going back to the private sector that I had, even though I lost, like I was just, my soul was right. Like I wanted to serve. Mm. And, and I kind of sat there post failure and said, all right, well, what are all the things that I saw that I can make a difference on? And I kept thinking about those classrooms. And so I started digging into women in technology and learned, right, that less than, you know, 18% of women in colleges were majoring in CS, even though 50, you know, percent of the labor force was female and that everyday technology was changing the way that we live and work, that it seemed like there were all these jobs that were open in this field. There were all these women that we were more reliant on to like put food on the table, but yet year by year by year, there's this enormous decline of us going into this industry. You know, I really approached the problem for two years like a lawyer and wrote a business plan or a white paper and said, what's the problem? What are solutions? What are people doing? What could we do? And realized that there wasn't actually a lot of intervention that was happening. And that maybe the way that I could help solve this problem was by building that pipeline of of talent and teaching young girls in high school how to code and really changing their mind or, or culture of what a computer scientist looks like. So Girls Who Code kind of started off like after two years of research as an idea. I remember I thought, you know what, let me just try this. Mm-hmm. Like I handpicked 20 girls. I borrowed a friend's conference room. I had a friend help me design the curriculum and we taught 20 girls to code. And after that summer is when I was like, oh, this is something like yeah. I, I want to build something about this. But look, I was not a coder. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a nonprofit leader. Like I was none of the things that would ultimately lead to becoming Girls Who Code. Like I joke, like if I had applied to be the executive director of Girls Who Code in 2012, like I wouldn't have gotten the job. <laughs> like I had like zero qualifications right. <laughs> to do it. But you notice the gap. And I think that that's, um, you know, what you were meant to spearhead. And and it's great that you've galvanized a team of professionals to lead Girls Who Code, right? So how, how many people are on your team and how many women strong are you? I know we just had our holiday party yesterday. It was just like my husband afterwards was like, oh, I'm so, I mean, it's just, it's wild to think of how much we've grown. You know, we have mm-hmm. almost a hundred people full time, thousands of people part time. You know, we've taught 185,000 girls. We're in yeah. 50 states, four countries and growing. And we're on our way to closing the pipeline uh, of women in technology by 2027. So it's kind of been extraordinary what we've been able to do. Listen, like so many of us talk ourselves out of our best ideas. Like I Mm -hmm. I often think of how many movements and how many ideas and how many cures and, you know, how many products like haven't been created because we thought we weren't ready or smart enough. I feel blessed every day that like I and people believed in me and I didn't talk myself out of it. I had lost that race and had built my bravery muscle Mm -hmm. that like. I didn't talk myself out of doing something that on paper I was so unqualified to do. Yes. So with some of the success stories with Girls Who Code, could you kind of share 
some of them. I know there's many. <laughs> Girls of Code is a, we're a nonprofit. And we basically do, we host free summer immersion programs that we host in technology companies. Mm-hmm. So about 1,700 girls will go to a, a Facebook or, a, or an AT&T or a, a BlackRock or a, you know, a Disney and they'll learn how to code mm-hmm. with the hopes that they go on to major or minor in computer science. Okay, great. And then we run about 10,000 after school girls who code clubs, again, to get girls interested in computer science. And so the goal is to get to parity on college campuses in CS and CS related majors, and then get to parity in the technology workforce. Mm-hmm. So over since our inception, if you, you know, if you went to, I'm on the board of Harvard University, and in 2012, you know, when we started, probably less than 18% of CS majors at Harvard were nine for women. And today that number is almost reaching to 30%. And in wow. many colleges it is, right? So we have changed the pipeline of women going into CS. I was just on campus this weekend and I did a meeting with all the women in computing and they're like all our students, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's really, really, really amazing um, in terms of like, uh, if you meet girls where they're at and if you really say, you know, listen, I am going to teach coding in a way that girls are going to get excited about it and I'm going to like not take my foot off the pedal, what is possible? Yes, absolutely. A few that I had read up on were the tampon run game, um, (laughs) which is so badass. Oh my goodness. And then there were some girls, uh, a girl whose father had cancer. And so she's using her coding skills, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like our theory is that girls are change makers. And so what we do in our clubs and our summer programs is say at the end of it, say, okay, now that you've learned how to code, if you could build one thing, what would you build? And Mm. what's so powerful is every year then we learn what's on the minds of 13 to 17 year old girls. So in 2013, one of my my favorite projects that came out of that was Tampon Run because Mm -hmm. Sophie and Andy said, listen, a lot, they were thinking about the menstruation taboo back then. And it's so powerful to see now in 2019, how much period equity is in the conversation Mm-hmm. that they were thinking about as kids five years ago. Even climate change was something that I was hearing from kids all the time in 14 and 15. And now you're seeing kind of girls like Greta. So they're often such a great bellwether on like, what's the crisis? What's the thing on the minds of young people? And what do they want to build and innovate? So again, in the, over the past two years, a lot of the conversation has been around mental health. And so, yes, we've seen games called Tampon Run. We've seen games to help activists on Black Lives Matter. We've seen microchips being created created on for gun reform to put in a gun when it goes off in an area like a school. We're seeing apps being created by Syrian refugees to help Americans get to polls. And we're basically seeing so many different issues. This generation of girls are they're leaders and they're change makers and they are constantly thinking about how to make the world a better place. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that as adults we failed them. Yes. You know? Yeah that I mean that traces back to the baby booming generation, kind of what we're left with. But yeah, it's amazing to see how tenacious they are to take matters into their own hands and learn whatever they need to, to change the world. How do girls sign up for Girls Who Code? What's the criteria? Our programs are free. Half the girls we teach are under the poverty line. Half the girls we teach are, are Black and Latina. You just sign up. You go to our website, see if we have a club in your area. If you're a rising junior or senior in high school, sign up for a Girls Who Code summer program. Okay. Wow. That's great. Now, I want to talk about your book, Brave Not Perfect, which is a breath of fresh air. Why did you write it? 
Mm. You know, I have been working on issues, I feel like my whole life that affect women and girls and activism and fighting against racism, sexism. And I felt like nothing really has changed. Mm. And I really wanted to understand why. You know, I saw in my classes that so many girls were coming to our program and they had never coded before. And when they were learning, they were afraid to show the mistakes in their code Mm -hmm. and ask help. So like it's almost this idea of perfection or bust. They weren't going to raise their hand and say, hey, I wrote this line of code. I know it's not there's a semicolon missing here or there. Will you sh- will you show me how to do it? It's almost like they rather show nothing at all. I gave a, a TED talk about this, this idea that mm-hmm. girls are raised to be perfect and boys are raised to be brave. Five million people watch it. Mm-hmm. And I'm inundated with women and men, women saying, I do this too. Girls saying, I do this too. Men mm-hmm. saying, my daughter does this too. <laughs> and I was like, wow, maybe there's something here. And I guess I got to write a book about it. Mm-hmm. And so I spent two years writing Brave Not Perfect. I put it out there in the world last February. It's an international bestseller. I have have this perpetually never-ending book tour. Um, (laughs) And it's really kind of sparked a movement in our country and the world about bravery and how bravery can lead to joy and how unlearning perfection can actually help solve or help shift leadership in our country and in the world. Yes. And it's just so relatable. I felt like you were speaking to me because we've all been been that girl or we've had those women who want us to be prim and proper and don't get dirty and watch out, you're going to fall. And with the boys, they're, you know, like you say, they run to the top of the jungle gym and they just free fall and it's totally fine. You know, no one's running after them. I think that we need to start young where we're not trying to keep our girls so coddled and left to be fragile because we want both our girls and boys to be able to take risks um, in the long run. So we we do have to kind of start, start young. Do you think that we're predisposed to be this way because of evolution you know men were hunters and women were building bonds and is that what it traces back to um and then slowly that's kind of become a norm in society yeah i mean i think it's more about socialization right i think it's just like we are i don't think it's you know i talk about this in my book i don't think it's genetic right that like men were the hunters and and they were just like protecting women i think it's just it's how we have year after year after year socialized ourselves into behaving and i do think it's second nature you know a friend of mine had a baby and she was like walking you know to her, she was teaching her baby how to how to her baby was learning how to walk and she was walking behind her and she was like be careful honey be careful honey be careful honey and then she's like I heard mm. your voice in my head and I was like go baby go baby go baby <laughs> but it's just second nature right like we coddle our girls we straighten their bows we fix their dresses we tell them not to get dirty we don't want them to get physically hurt but like you know with our boys like I see this every day I have a four and a half year old son and my my husband is constantly flipping him in the air and throwing him on the ground Mm -hmm. and I wonder if Nahal and I say if not if we had a daughter whether he would play rough you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like like the way that he does and I don't think he would he's a a feminist you know he's a feminist yes it's Mm -hmm. totally a conscious decision Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is just what I've been trying to do is get people to be aware, even little things, right? Like, you know, when something was broken, I I realize there's like, 
how, by the time I was an adult, how uncomfortable I felt when something was broken or doing something physical with my hands, whether it was putting a painting up on the wall Mm -hmm. or fixing the toilet or changing a tire. And I realized it was because even though, again, I was raised by a feminist dad, I really wasn't taught to use my hands. Mm -hmm. And so I tell parents today, like if the toilet's broken, grab your daughter to go, like let her tinker and to take things apart. And if we're not doing that as parents or doing that as educators, you know, there's just not a lot of opportunity because even if you go into, for example, the Lego store, which my son loves, Mm -hmm. there's so much in that store for him, right? Right. Star Wars toys, there's superheroes, there's Avengers, there's this, that. And then then it's like, there's a little aisle for girls Mm -hmm. for a frozen Lego set or like a supermarket. So like, how can we teach our girls to tinker and to take things apart when we can't meet them where they are? And we're not even thinking about building things for them. Right, right. It's so true. Um, We definitely have to, within our own families, change these gender norms and and stereotypes that exist. In my case, I have um, three kids. I have uh, boy-girl twins who are two and a one-year-old son. You know, my husband and I really have to make a conscious decision that we, you know, treat all of them equally. So um, like you said, uh, your husband, Nahal, like will... um, throw your son up in the air. Same with Sunil. He'll do that, but then he'll do that with all three and he'll wrestle with all three (laughs) because we don't want Sahana to feel left out and she shouldn't, you know? Um, And and it's amazing. She doesn't play with dolls. She loves engineering toys. She plays with cars just like um, her twin brother. Yeah. And she's like, you know, I want a pink car. I want a purple car but she wants a car, you know, and it's, it's really cool to see that. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where it was me and my sister and we, we did like the playing tea party and dolls. And my daughter's like a little into that, but she's mostly into the stuff that her brothers are into. Um, and she just puts her fun spin on it. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, how much if you actually, and and the thing is, is you're not even pushing your views on them. I think you're just letting them do what they want. Like my son, like we have like, like he loves Elsa. And frozen, and every mm. morning we'll do this little dance party. Yeah. And- you know, but he's like a boy boy, right? And he loves yeah. Transformers and like, you know, or like when he's picking out superheroes, he'll pick out one Wonder Woman and one Captain America. Mm-hmm. And so like, and I, and yes, I have like constantly said like, well, what, why not the girl or why let's right. watch this or like, you know, and so I'm putting it in his world, but I'm not forcing it on him. Exactly. And so, and I realized yeah. that like society though is structured to put them into gender constructs. Right. What, what I think we need to do as parents is like, let them be open to everything. Exactly. And on the flip side, we have to be mindful of allowing our boys, if they want to cry or are gentler, that that's okay. We don't have to expect them to man up, quote unquote, you know? Yeah, 100%. I mean, my son is so emo. I yes. mean, he is so kind. And we went to go see Lion King, the new one. He walked bawling when like, you know, dad died, right? Right. And we had to leave. Like, he's like, you know, the only ride at Disney he could handle was like Small World. So he's like really, (laughs) and, um, you know, again, I think everyone's nature is to toughen him up and make Mm -hmm. him strong. And I'm like, no, like, let him be like that. He wears his heart on his sleeve. And like, to me, I'd rather have a kid that's kind and pure in that sense. Right. And so, but you're right. You have to be intentional about even with our boys, allowing them to be vulnerable and emotional. Yes, absolutely. Um, What was your motherhood journey like? 
Oh my God. You know, I had a really tough time. I had um, recurrent miscarriages and I got, I used to get pregnant very easily. And then Mm -hmm. I would lose the baby uh, around, you know, between eight and 12 weeks. And I finally figured out that I had this condition called APS. So every time I got pregnant, my body would, would, would attack the fetus. So Mm -hmm. I spent most of my, I feel like most of my 30s, most of my 30s and my half my 40s, desperately wanting to be a mother and it just Mm -hmm. eluding me, you know, in so many ways. So when I finally became one, which my son, Sean, it was just, it was amazing, but then really freaking complicated because as much as I worked so hard to get him, there were moments where I just couldn't wait to get away from him. Right. Mm -hmm. And just like be alone and have breakfast and read the New York times. And like, and so it's like, it is one of the most kind of complicated relationships that I'll ever have. And mm-hmm. I have a crazy connection with my son, but I also, I'm on a plane twice a week and I travel a lot and I'm trying to change the world and, I, you know, I'm trying to make a difference. And so, but I'm always resolving or trying to resolve this enormous amount of guilt I have mm-hmm. and this enormous amount of that I, I miss my baby. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I I totally feel you. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> Such a challenging yet joyous kind of flip flopping between both. Um, when you're a first time mom, it can be really exhausting. It is. I also just yeah. think because we're not allowed to say it's like we are supposed to pretend that like we want to be with them all the time and that we you know that they're not annoying and frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Like it's also this veneer. And I think it's just, again, a lot of inauthenticity around pregnancy and how, how to get pregnant, how easy it is to stay mm-hmm. pregnant, who, and, and this idea of fertility privilege is something we've just started really talking about. And I think it's the same thing around motherhood. Like we're expected to be martyrs. I remember mm-hmm. the amount of times I've gotten yelled at having, you know, when, when Sean was little and having a meal with him, you know, in Chelsea at a restaurant and if, if he was loud or screaming or whatever, and people would look at me as if like I am not allowed to have a dinner. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like I yeah. should go hide him in a in like a in a, in a <laughs> room somewhere. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. No, it's so That's it's true. so true. Um, and then you know if a dad's um on baby duty, he gets lauded for that. You know, it's uh, oh my god. Yeah. I always use my when we're out with like another couple with our kids. The dads are the first ones like let's take a selfie together, right? It's like they <laughs> want to prove you know that they're dads. Whereas yeah. like, they're not even like. Okay. You know, yeah, it's like, let's just get food in their belly and get, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. On your Instagram, you recently shared um, a picture that your son, Sean was holding and it was a sonogram photo. Yeah. You're, you're having a baby in February. So if you want to share the story behind that. Yeah. So, you know, after all of my um, fertility challenges, I ended up having my son uh, naturally. And it was a cocktail of Lovenox and baby aspirin and bed rest and getting him. I mean, he's like a miracle baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, born with a cord around his neck. My placenta was breaking in half, all of it. Oh, my goodness. But I thought, you know, when I was ready to have my son, I had him at 39. And mm-hmm. so I just needed a break for a year after I had him. But then I was like, okay, I want, I really wanted to have two kids. And I always, just saw, I don't know, I just always felt like there was a soul that was out there waiting for me. 
Yeah. And I was like, but I was like, okay, well, this is going to be easier because we went through all that. And the second time was even harder, more miscarriages, more, you know, more hospitals, more doctors, more pain, more trauma. But I was resilient. I was having this kid. And, you know, we got to the point where my doctor was like, you, you can't get pregnant anymore. Like you can't keep getting pregnant and miscarrying and getting a DNC or, you know, like right. you're going to have to think about other ways. And she kind of started talking about surrogacy. You know, it's not something I knew anybody had done or you know, besides like Kim Kardashian, like, and, you know, we started exploring it, but what was happening still at that same time was I wasn't even getting any healthy embryos. Mm. I made the decision to do it. I suddenly miraculously got some healthy embryos. (gasps) Wow. Wild. And so we are having, yeah, it's Kismet. So we are having a baby with this, my amazing surrogate Amber, uh, that's due in January and it's been this amazing journey and my son Sean could not be more excited that he's having a brother (laughs) oh my goodness that's so exciting wow 2020 is gonna be your year yeah well one of the things that I missed about pregnancy was it gave me excuse to slow down a little Mm -hmm. bit and so it's been this kind of interesting experience um having a surrogate because I'm almost having but I'm very so I'm so excited when the baby comes just to be able to to bond with him and get to know him. And of all these months, I feel like I've missed out on having him. Mm-hmm. You know, with Sean, it was like, I think so much of our intensity was that like carrying him, I felt like he was on this journey with me and I really knew him, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, You're definitely going to be raising them to be feminist. How are you going to teach them to be that way without the sister in the picture? <laughs> no. So what? Uh, like really thought I was going to have just daughters and then yeah. never thought I would have boys. But I feel like it's like, you know, God gave gives you what you deserve. And part of, I think, in this conversation around feminism and girls is about like, what's the role of male allies and what's the role of our sons and how do we raise them to be ones that are like lifting women up. And, you know, Sean is, is, is in many ways an example of that. Like he is constantly around women leaders. There's nothing he likes more than coming to Girls Who Code. I bring him to my speeches and he just sits there and I swear he like listens and understands what I'm talking about in terms of equity and gender. And, you know, it's funny. It's like when people come up to me, they say, thank you so much for what you're doing for my daughter. I kind of mm-hmm. like, wait, not just for your daughter. It's yes. for my son too. You know, and I think it's changing our mindset that this yeah. isn't something just for our girls. Girls Who Code is not just for girls. It's for our world. It's for, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm getting choked up. <laughs> um, one thing that I talk to my husband about often is the, the tagline or buzzwords or hashtag, the future is female. And I personally can't back it because... I have boy-girl twins. And mm-hmm. how could I tell my son, Krish, that it's Suhana's time? Like, you already had your time. What is your take on it? I, I feel like I'm more egalitarian. The future is, future for me is equal. You know, I, oh, I don't think that, you know, so it's... Ne- mm-hmm. Right? It's I mean, what do you want? To flip it around and have them on 79 cents on the dollar? No, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, how, how do you feel about that? Oh, I feel like we d- I'm going to disagree with you because I feel like... I'll I'll give you an example. I um, went to school uh, the other day and a parent gets to come in and read the book. And I brought in Wacky Wednesday. And you know, Wacky Wednesday, like you have to like point out the nine wacky things, the eight wacky things, the 10 wacky things. And so I'm sitting there in his preschool class and like the boys are literally at that age just rushing me, 
right? To be like, I know, I see it. It's right here. Like they are front and center. And the girls are kind of in the back, apprehensive, not taking up the same amount of space. Every day my son tells me how smart he is, how he knows everything. Mm. And I'm like, literally like the world is set up to support you and to lift you up. Mm-hmm. And and you're going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel like the energy, the fight still needs to happen for our girls Mm. because they I don't think they start off in the same place that's true that's true yeah we definitely weren't on the level playing field and my son's a brown boy you know what Mm -hmm. I mean and this is what people always used to say to me like when you have sons you actually were you know it's like you almost feel less stressed Mm -hmm. and now I know what they mean Mm. yeah it's true like where you're gonna have to fight for everything for your daughter yeah like I you know I have a niece who's like a daughter to me and I I see it you know, and of course, mm-hmm. I have 185,000 girls that I mother and <laughs> and and their struggles and their their it's just I don't know mm. it's harder for them. I think the thing is is we want to get to a world where the future is the future, right? But we're right. in the moment where I think that we have to fight for parity, and I think yes. the 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 shift on the conversation is we need men to fight alongside with because Absolutely. that world would be better for them too, mm-hmm. and inequity is hurting them too. So if you were to give my listeners some tips on a path to being brave that they can implement right now, what would those tips be? Okay, so I think the first is you can't be brave if you're tired, and every woman I know is exhausted, mm-hmm. and so get rested. And part of being rested, I've learned as a mom is like doing something for yourself and doing something. So for me, it was going to the gym. Like when I went and worked out, I was just happier, healthier, better. But I realized that going to the gym didn't mean waking up at five in the morning before the dog, before the baby, <laughs> going to the gym at waking up at 7.30, which was when the baby was getting up and the dog wanted to go out. And it was at a time that was the most inconvenient for my, the family, but the most convenient for me. So mm. pick something for yourself that is at a time that is inconvenient for everyone else, because then you will learn how to prioritize you. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, is practice imperfection. So I think that we do everything 120, but it, we don't get the gains for doing it at 120. And that if we did things at 80% or 85%, we actually would be just fine. And there are so many things that we do whether it is bringing freshly baked cookies to our kid's birthday party, sending an email with a hundred emojis and nine explanation points, like mm-hmm. practice imperfection. And so what I say, and I said, your listeners, like send an email with a typo in it that's semi-consequential to somebody. And what you're going to learn is that like, it's going to be just fine. Right. And there are a lot of things that you do or raise your hand without perfecting the question in your head. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like say no to something, to a friend who wants you to like walk her dog or, and, and don't worry about whether she's not going to like you. And so practice imperfection in your life and you'll realize that like, you're going to have more time. And there's a lot of things that you're doing perfectly that you don't need to. And it's causing stress and anxiety. So true. When did you trust your mom's sense? I think I started trusting my mom's sense when I was struggling with fertility. I know this sounds crazy, but there's so many times where people just told me to give up and let it go. And I just felt like there was this soul that was waiting for me. Wow. And yeah, I can't wait for the world to meet him. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Um, Is there a quote that you live by? 
the mantra that I live by right now, obviously, is 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 brave, not perfect. Because I think it's so important to like every time I know that I that voice in their head that's telling me I can't do something or I'm not good enough for them, I'm not smart enough. I just like brave, not perfect. Like there's so many moms who tell me like their daughter looks her today and it's gonna be a brave, not perfect day, and like that's <laughs> like their mantra. That's so cool. It's now time for Mom Hall when we share products we love. Do you have a product that you are just like loving right now? It can be parenting related, wellness, beauty, just, you know, it's like girlfriend to girlfriend. You need this. Oh God. Uh, Rent the runway unlimited. Ah, love it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, it's like the one thing that if it went away, I would like, I really honestly would not know what to do. Yes. And it's sustainable, you know, <laughs> totally sustainable. I don't buy clothes anymore. Yeah, I concur. Um, and lastly, where can we find you? Where can we buy your book? Sure. Um, go to bravenotperfect.com and you will and subscribe to my bravery bulletin. Listen to my brave, not perfect podcast. Follow me on Instagram Twitter and um, join the bravery movement. I love it. Thank you so much, Reshma, for teaching us what our bravery muscle is. And we're going to put it to use and we're all going to practice being brave, not perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Reshma is such an inspiration to young girls and women the world over, and it was an honor having her on my show. Reshma, thank you so much for reminding us to be brave and to learn to embrace our imperfections. They make us who we are at the end of the day and add substance and character to our stories. If you'd like to recommend an influential mama to be on my show or want to be featured yourself, write to me at that's total mom sense at gmail.com. I'd like to share a review from one of my listeners, Lisa. She writes, I love this podcast. There are great interviews, awesome guests, and Kanika does a great job of asking really great questions. Perfect podcast for moms. Thank you so much, Lisa. You are the reason why I keep churning these episodes out uh, week after week. I love that they resonate with you and I'm going to be creating even more content um, just for you and all those moms out there. Now remember, always trust your mom sense. Stay strong, super mamas. Bye. That's total mom sense.